0: The following is a conversation with Noel Atchison, one of the premier crypto asset and macro environment researchers in the space. Noel previously served as the head of market insights at Genesis, a prime broker for institutional clients and the managing director of research at the media company Coindesk. This is the Atria podcast where we bring light and ventilation to the crypto web three space. I'm Joe McKeating. All views expressed on this show are those of the individuals stating them, and nothing on this show is investment advice. Please like and review the Atriot podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as it helps us rank higher and reach a broader audience. Noël, thanks for joining me.
1: Joe, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: So, Noël, in a recent report, you wrote that 2022 was the year that disbelief in central banks went mainstream. Thought that might be a good place to start. What did you mean by that? And what are the implications?
1: Now, Jenna, that's such an interesting topic. And I love it that that's the one you focused on first because it really highlights several things that have been going on. One, the phenomenal change that we have all seen, not just in technology, not just in the economy, but in the way our institutions are perceived. It's uh, also a very interesting segue into the role that crypto has played across the ecosystem and across demographics in teaching us to ask different types of questions. I'll do a slight step back and then we'll carry on with the disbelief that I refer to. And that is I come from traditional finance. Many, many years ago, I did work in traditional finance. I thought I understood money. I just moved it around. I conflated money with numbers. And it wasn't until I discovered Bitcoin that I realized I didn't understand money at all all and I know that all of my former colleagues probably to this day still don't understand money we are just we just assume that what we're told money is is what it is we don't ask the questions along comes a new tool in the box that works in a way we haven't seen before and that is challenging these preconceived notions that we have all grown up with such as what is money such as what is the role of a central bank, such as what do I want from my regulators, etc. cetera. And all of this combined with the, I guess we can say mismanagement of the inflation buildup with the reactions to the various crises that we've had so far this century, all of which have led us to a fairly precarious situation. I'm talking to you from Europe, and we are very concerned about having enough heat in winter and this is in the year 2022 when this just was not supposed to happen so disbelief in central banks not just uh, from economists anymore who disagree with some of the policies that our our supposed experts have been undertaking but The man on the street, the man on the street who doesn't understand why his or her grocery bill is now 50 percent higher than it was a year ago. who doesn't understand why electricity bills have gone up 600 percent and who doesn't understand why they can't travel to see their parents, even just in the neighboring country. This kind of um, skepticism that the experts know what they're doing, which those of us who lived through the 2008 crisis started to become familiar with, has now, as you just said earlier, become mainstream.
0: And what about when it comes to cryptocurrency itself, um, and especially the, let's call it the godfather of uh, cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin itself, we've often thought of Bitcoin or Bitcoin's often been described, one of the ways it's been described is as an inflationary hedge. How, How do you see that playing out? Do you think it's a Do you think that'll happen in the long term? Skeptics, uh, critics say right now that it, it tracks the NASDAQ pretty closely. What are your thoughts on that, being someone who's researched it for so long?
1: It's been a fascinating evolution of the narrative. I am going to take a stand and push back strongly against all of those who say Bitcoin as an inflation hedge narrative is dead. We know for sure it isn't. And I'll remind everyone that we as human beings are really bad at knowing what new technologies are going to be used for. I mean, the internet was created to share research papers. The the phonograph was created to listen to sermons. I mean, steel was created for something totally different. We're bad at that. And so we do not yet know what these new technologies, and I say these because I'm talking about the whole ecosystem. We don't know what they're going to be used for. True. Bitcoin did position itself in the early days as an inflation hedge because it has a hard supply cap, whereas inflation often comes from, as we have seen, a lack of a supply cap. We say, uh, supply increases, demand remains the same, the price is going to come down. That's what's happening to currencies around the world. So the theory is still there. The fact that it has not worked as an inflation hedge so far does not mean it never will. Gold really has not acted as an inflation hedge so far. But uh, another part of my, another vector of my pushback is going to be inflation hedge is probably too simplistic a narrative to start with. My personal belief is that Bitcoin is going to be seen as a hedge against currency debasement. That's not necessarily the same as inflation. They usually go hand in hand, but not always. And even more, a hedge against just plain old economic craziness. Bitcoin is predictable. Bitcoin's supply will never change, no matter what the price, no matter what the economic environment, no matter what the demand. It is predictable. And that is a refreshing antidote in a very strange economic environment. But a reminder, we don't yet know what its end use case will be. And and if I can go off on one slight vector, which also, also makes me chuckle, and that is we assume people who say these kind of things tend to assume that Bitcoin needs to be one thing. It doesn't. This is another amazing thing about how it emerged anonymously, grassroots. It can be whatever we want it to be. If I want it to be an inflation hedge, then for me, it is going to be an inflation hedge, long-term, of course. Whereas if you want it to be a payments mechanism, then for you, it is a payments mechanism. If somebody else wants it to be a data storage system, then it's a data storage system. That's the thing about Bitcoin. Because no one entity is the issuer, because no one person controls most of it, It will be what the market wants it to be. And the innovations of the technology do endow it with many potential uses.
0: Yeah, that's great. I actually want to get back to Bitcoin in a minute, but another thought I had just because you brought up earlier something that that triggered a question that you worked in finance and you thought you knew what money was, and then you realized that you hadn't previously known what money was, was and it's so atria is a a professional learning platform right and we start with the history of money and this is such a tough question sometimes to answer and if you just most people think that they know what money is until you're put on the spot to answer what money is and you realize it's a lot more complicated than than it may seem and sometimes the best way to do it is almost forming a chalk outline around it, meaning you you start talking about the characteristics of what makes money money, but it's really hard to just say what money is. I was just wondering in all your years of of research uh, and writing these reports, have you, have you come up with any easy way to you know, maybe help listeners on this podcast think about what is money anyway?
1: Well, I do tend, anyone who knows me will know that I tend to bristle against unnecessary rules. And money is an economic phenomenon, so I can totally understand why people would want to pinpoint exactly what it is. But uh, for me, money is what we want it to be. If you and I want to exchange gumbo beans for something, then why isn't that a form of money? There's also a lot of confusion always between the the difference between money and currency. Currency is a an economic tool that I totally get, needs a certain definition an economic definition. But money is a much vaguer concept, really. We, I, I was reading this morning an article, I forget where, about is ETH money? And people will bang on the table and say, no, of course it's not money. But well, why not? I mean, if you use ETH to buy an NFT, why isn't it money? Sure, it doesn't satisfy the characteristics, but this goes back to what we talked about earlier. Who gave us those rules and why? And do we have to assume that they are the correct ones? Technology has evolved since all of these definitions and rules were created. And so it's time that they evolved as well. I believe money can be what we say it is.
0: Yeah. And ETH is many things as well. Like you said, there you, you, it can be used for many purposes. And so it's very hard to pinpoint that as well. You know, we did go through the merge recently, and I did read in one of your reports, just when you were, it seemed, pushing back a little bit on some, um, we call it crypto mainstream narratives, that uh, this that this reduction in the amount of ETH being issued, a lot of people are really celebrating the fact that this is going to become a deflationary asset. And because for for listeners, that really just means that the uh, the 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 supply is going to go down over time, and um, you know people have made an argument. Tara Anderson, who I had on recently, but made a really compelling point that if you like the hard cap on Bitcoin, you should love uh, a currency that's actually deflationary over time. Now, you made a, a counterpoint to that that I thought was pretty compelling as well, which is, sure, you can make that argument, but there still no is no cap. True.
1: And we don't know it's going to be deflationary. I personally think it will end up becoming deflationary. It's not at the moment, except for certain occasional days when the transaction fees do manage to offset the issuance in terms of the ETH that is burned as part of the base fee. But recently that has been very scarce, very rare, because there's not a lot of transactions going on at the moment, largely because of the bear market, yes, but also because of the growing activity on some of the layer two. They are doing, the layer twos, they are doing very well. They are siphoning off transactions from Ethereum, and there's actually no reason why that's going to slow down. They're, in fact, just getting started. So I do think that when Ethereum does its next major upgrade, whenever that is, to introduce sharding and some of the other scaling technologies that they're working on, then yes, we could see greater throughput. But in the meantime, we don't know when that's going to be. We don't know what kind of impact is going to have. In theory, it is likely that ETH will become deflationary, but it is predicate on many variables and we don't yet know the outcome of those.
0: Another point that you made that I found interesting You just talked about when ETH makes its next major upgrade. Um, So we say ETH can be a lot of things. Bitcoin can be a lot of things. And you were also making a point that when you push ETH as a store of value, you made a point that a true store of value can't radically change. Uh, gold, Gold doesn't become... Something completely different. And if it did, it would be a huge problem. And it's, it's really the fact that it can't is one of the reasons it is a store of value, right? Um, so w- when we see that with ETH, you made that point and it makes me wonder about Bitcoin as well. What your thoughts are some of the technologies being built on top of that? Like, do you think that the Lightning Network, which for listeners, uh, just to really, really simplify it, uh, allows much faster, much cheaper transactions using the security of Bitcoin, but it's an entire network built on top of that? Do you think that undermines some of the, um, the inherent value of Bitcoin? Or do you think these are good developments?
1: I think they're good developments. I think on the contrary to undermining, they actually enhance it. Why? Because of what we mentioned earlier, Bitcoin can be very many things. It doesn't have to be just one thing. My personal thesis, I haven't talked about this publicly very often, but I'll say now my personal thesis about Bitcoin is that it is a new technology that I trust to not break. And that does for me, also this of my personal opinion, nothing I say is investment advice. I know you said at the beginning, i repeat, nothing I say is advice. My personal opinion is that that is an important characteristic of a store of value. I do not expect a lot of people to agree with me on that. Bitcoin's evolution as a technology is slow, very slow. Many will say it is boring, but that's kind of what I want and something that I plan to place any portion of my personal wealth with, my pension fund, for instance. It is evolving Carefully, because of the amount of economic value riding on it, but also because of the very nature of the governance system behind Bitcoin. But that doesn't mean it's static. The taproot upgrade that we saw last October, I think, was very exciting for various reasons. One, it enhanced some of the smart contract functionality on Bitcoin. Nobody thinks of Bitcoin as a smart contract network, and it doesn't even hold a candle to Ethereum in that capacity. But it is increasing its functionality for some fairly interesting things that could have applications in insurance or in data sharing or things like that. But it did so after years of preparation and years of consensus building. And in the end, there was virtually no opposition to this because it was not a risk to the underlying network and it was a clear benefit to not just the enhanced functionality, but also the Lightning Network that you mentioned, which facilitates payments, uh, low-cost payments on Bitcoin. But this uh, was exciting, not just for the added utility, that it imbued the network with back in October, but the reminder to everyone that Bitcoin is a technology. It's not a lump of gold that is just sitting in your vault. It is pretty much as immutable as a lump of gold, but it will continue to improve gradually over the years, which is something that gold wouldn't do.
0: And you said something there that listeners may find interesting when you said there really wasn't much opposition to Taproot. Uh, who controls Bitcoin?
1: Nobody controls it. It is maintained by a group of core developers that are nominated by the wider group of developers that work on the network. Bitcoin's upgrades are done through a proposal, which is uploaded in GitHub, and then everyone just comments on it. And any objections or cha- such as changes, they're worked through until there is consensus but there's no one not even a small group could unilaterally decide to change bitcoin it is done through consensus and it will always be done through consensus because that is what makes bitcoin bitcoin i hear a lot about well, what if somebody just came in and bought out most of the bitcoin will they then control it no they wouldn't because they'd be just one stakeholder in the in the Ecosystem. What if Bitcoin were to go to proof of state because the regulators decided that that was the best? Well, it, it wouldn't. It couldn't, but it also just wouldn't. Uh, Bitcoin is decentralized, uh, has many different stakeholder groups, and they work in harmony to make sure that its core characteristics will remain intact through time, should any one group decide to try a change, they're welcome to fork it. That has happened many times in the past. And we have seen that there has yet to be a successful fork. And I say successful in the terms of actually any economic challenge to the network at all.
0: I think I remember Warren Buffett tweeting several months ago, if I could buy all the Bitcoin in the world for $25, I wouldn't do it. And it was (laughs) Michael Saylor who responded, well, that would really defeat the purpose if you owned all the bitcoin right <laughs> exactly. that would kind of defeat the the purpose of what of what we're doing here um now there are some people who are proponents of taking bitcoin which would be a which would be a fork uh from proof of work to proof of stake my guess is that you don't fall in that category
1: no my and i would say to them you know have at it go ahead and try uh, it they could Fork Bitcoin, it wouldn't be Bitcoin. It would be something very different.
0: And do you think, do you think that really only Bitcoin should stay proof of work, and some of the others should, exp- like, would you? I shouldn't say should because I know you're going to tell me that that they they're free to do whatever they want. But would your <laughs> would your preference be that Ethereum? Did you like that Ethereum went to proof of stake? Do you think others should be doing these? proof of stakes and proof of history and proof of authority and they're exploring these others that maybe are not as, um, I know there's, there's a lot of misinformation about the narrative of how much energy and w- what that means that, that Bitcoin is consuming, but is it good that not all of the blockchains are using that consensus mechanism?
1: Definitely. And I love it, Joe, that you're sort of already reading my mind. That's Larry <laughs> um, Yes. Uh, as you said, market freedom is something that I care very much about and Crypto is one of the freest markets I have ever seen. There are no barriers to innovation here. Sure, there's regulation and reg- rules do need to be obeyed. They are there for a reason. But within that, we do have a permissionless innovation ethos going on. And what two thoughts on that, two to vectors to, to go off on. One is the speed of the innovation, the volume of new ideas that are being tested in real time At scale, we've never been able to do that before. That is a very exciting educational and intellectual development that is going to uh, deliver all sorts of uh, insights that are no doubt going to help the industry evolve going forward, not just crypto as well, but also the the merge that we saw last week where Ethereum transitioned to proof of stake is giving this network now two very large scale examples of two very different consensus algorithms. And I think that is incredibly exciting. Bitcoin should remain proof of work. Ethereum should remain proof of stake. There are all indications that this will be the case. And we observers get to watch how they evolve.
0: Do you imagine a DeFi ecosystem like the one that we see on Ethereum developing on top of Bitcoin?
1: No, I don't. Uh, Ethereum is much better suited for the complex innovation behind some of the DeFi functionalities that we already have and that we haven't even imagined yet. Ethereum has a much more complex programming language. It is going to lend itself to all sorts of permutations of the services we see now. Bitcoin is boring. Bitcoin is simple. That is what makes it secure. And there will be some DeFi on Bitcoin, I believe, but it will not have nearly the complexity and the interconnectivity and the composability that the DeFi ecosystem on Ethereum has. I'm very excited to see what could happen on some of the other blockchains, such as Avalanche, for instance, or some of the smaller ones that are emerging in the years when I'm starting to look into. And I think there's each one is different. Each one has different characteristics and different advantages. And so DeFi applications can harness those particular advantages depending on what they want to do. What's another area, another area to keep an eye on is the connectivity between the different blocks blockchains, will we have a multi-chain system or will we just have several very large isolated blockchain systems? I don't know the answer to that. It's one of the reasons why watching this kind of experimentation is so fascinating. And going back to what you asked earlier, Joe, different kind of blockchains, different kind of security systems, different kind of centralization parameters. Let's see how it evolves
0: yeah whether we'll have multi chain keep having bridges between these whether we'll come up with a, another solution um sticking on defi for a minute um especially coming from a background in traditional finance and then having been in the crypto industry for so long what what are your thoughts on defi and what what's the promise of defi and uh, what does it offer that traditional finance doesn't because People sometimes will still say, if you talk to them about this, I don't really have a problem right now.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. I'm happy with my bank. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And I totally get that. I am happy with my bank. Thank you very much. And you and I will never need these kinds of services, probably because you and I could exchange value without much of a problem because we happen to be privileged enough to live in areas that have stable and Technology, technologically advanced financial systems. But, um, so two answers to that question. One, DeFi is, as its name applies, decentralized finance. It is decentralized, it removes some of the middlemen. And that in itself opens up a whole host of innovations for even traditional finance. For those that are on the FinTech side of it, who want to try and disintermediate and reduce costs and come up with all sorts of innovative ways to earn yield, DeFi has checked those boxes for sure. It has been successful in that. Traditional finance, we know, are looking at the DeFi services as a way to reduce their own internal costs. It's not necessarily going to be decentralized if it is run by a centralized organization, granted. But if it can reduce some of the necessary fact checking or data sharing or even control of centralized uh, intermediaries, then that is going to be a win-win, not just for the centralized adopters of some DeFi principles, but also their users. But now going down to answer number two, DeFi around the world is something that we should be keeping an eye on. It's very early days yet. I mean the Chainalysis crypto adoption report came out a few days ago and is showing that most of the growth in crypto adoption is coming from emerging, developing economies because they do not have the legacy financial systems to use to fall back on like you and I do. And for them, stable coins, uh, Bitcoin as a store of values, the DeFi that is emerging on Ethereum are ways to not just save, uh, transact, but also develop some sort of economic activity without needing to go through the rather clunky and expensive permissioned controls that many of these areas require. Now, obviously, the regulators are going to have a lot to say on this. This is another area definitely worth watching. But the fact that it can happen often means it will eventually when things settle down and the innovators realize that this is actually good for economic activity, which is good for everyone.
0: And Noel, do you grow up or at least spend some of your life in sub-Saharan Africa? Is that right?
1: I did, yes. Thanks for asking that. I was born and grew up in Zambia. For those of you who don't know, it's smack in the middle, no coast whatsoever, but a very beautiful country. And that's one of the reasons I fell in love with Bitcoin, Joe. Back in the year 2013, I sold my e-commerce company. I was in traditional finance for many years, as I said. I left that in the year 2000 to set up an e-commerce company in Spain, where I was living at the time. Ran that for 13 years, sold it 2013. And then in 2014, I'm, I'm sitting on my parents' sofa in London, and I'm trying to catch up on what had been going on in the world when I wasn't paying attention. So uh, fintech is something that definitely had exploded on the scene and I didn't know much about it. So I'm catching up there and Bitcoin was mentioned quite often. So I watched a video on Khan Academy, what is Bitcoin? And I got goosebumps because I grew up in Zambia, just the idea of permissionless payments in a region like that, what it could do for the economy, obviously, it. Didn't work out that way. Permissionless payments is a potential use case that has yet to be developed, largely because those of us, most of us who are doing developing, we are in areas where we don't really need that. And there's a competing narrative of store of value. But I still believe in the potential of Bitcoin to facilitate all sorts of transactions in areas that do not have the privileges that you and I have. Bitcoin is clunky as a payment system, and it is relatively expensive as a payment system, but it is still better than what most of the world has to struggle with.
0: And are, are you familiar with the the concept of leapfrogging in technology? Yes,
1: yes, I did a lot so, of work on the m system when I was looking into this. And yes, the fact that they don't have the barriers that many of us have in terms of established legacy financial systems. In theory, that is a great advantage. And I say in theory, because in practice, there are other barriers that they need to overcome that maybe you or I wouldn't. And a lot of that has to do with regulatory structures. Oh, and (laughs) internet connection as well, quite necessary.
0: Absolutely, we we saw that with mobile devices, where there were certain countries and certain areas in the world where the people there kind of skipped over the PC era and went straight to mobile phones, these supercomputers in your hand, and there's just an interesting phenomenon that can happen that when you skip that era, you come up with use cases that just every setup is different. So if you go PC mobile, you're gonna have totally different use cases than the opposite. And I wonder the the same thing, if we might see that with uh, cryptocurrencies, because uh, as you brought up earlier, especially with an environment as rich and expansive as Ethereum, we really have no idea, uh, what people are going to build using this. And we're, we're so early and there's this idea of, uh, enabling the future as opposed to trying to foresee everything. But you just open those doorways and you see what, who goes through and who wants to build what. And I wonder if we'll see that in, in some parts of the world where we see this leapfrogging effect, even in the uses of cryptocurrency that no one had thought of that. And it's big.
1: even more exciting than that, Joe. That was extremely well put and totally 400% agreed, but it's even more exciting than that because we've seen, because of the leapfrogging that you talk about, the impact on local economies that access to mobiles can have. And it doesn't have to be a smartphone. It can be any kind of phone. Just the access to mobile, being able to fish in one area and then telephone the catch-through to the marketplace so you can pre-sell, for instance. And then when 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 they when you are able to perhaps pay via mobile as cash Kenya saw when it uh, launched the m system, then that also was a huge kickstart to the economy and other further boost. One issue though that we all know with the current web system, the current HTTPS system and even the ITP system is that there isn't a native way to pay online you still need to go through banks to be able to pay or you need to go through the centralized telecommunications companies in the case of lupesa what if there were a decentralized native currency that would enable transactions on a decentralized seizure resistant censorship resistant network that what kind of economies would that unleash in areas where there is relatively low infrastructure but so much energy so much human capital so much human capital actually looking for new ways to transact to take care of their loved ones to educate themselves it's um it it's going to get as you said so exciting it's already is very exciting in in certain areas in the world all areas of the world but especially in some of the ones that have been somewhat overlooked by now but it's just getting started
0: did you see that when you were looking into, it's M-Pesa, right?
1: Yes, yes. It's the the mobile currency that took off in Kenya, run by Safaricom, which is a subsidiary of Vodafone. But it totally bypassed legacy banks. Um, more people have M-Pesa accounts, obviously, than, than they have bank accounts. More people have mobile phones than the bank accounts. And, it, and Kenya ended up being one of the most connected in terms of mobile phones countries in sub-Sahara, largely because it enabled transactions and efficiencies that were not not thought of before. And I read somewhere, and this was a while ago, and it's not fact-checked, that something like 70% of the country's GDP at one stage passed through the M-Pesa system. We even saw the government issue, a government bond On the INPESA system allowing individual savers for the first time to put as much as you know 50 shillings into a government debt this is a it's not only going to it's not not only has the potential to open new forms of financing for governments and for businesses and for individuals but also new forms of saving and that is that is an economic unlocker right there
0: so I was vaguely familiar with it before. I have nowhere near the knowledge or understanding you do. Do you know if it's crypto friendly? If they're exploring anything in that direction, or is it? Unfortunately, anti-
1: it's not crypto friendly. Unfortunately, they are trying to put up guardrails to prevent some crypto businesses using similar systems and linking with it. This, this um, was a battle earlier on uh, in the crypto in the crypto life cycle. So, unfortunately, no, and it's centralized and uh not therefore ideal, but so much better than what they had. And it is an inkling, an insight into what a similar crypto system could become were the regulatory barriers to lower.
0: Yeah. Have you have you seen that at all in, in your research? And we'll get off this this topic of MPESA in a minute. I'm just curious because uh you're very knowledgeable about this. Have have you have you seen instances of seizures and censorship and Uh, It's obviously a concern we have in Crypto Web 3.0 with any centralized system, but sometimes you see examples where it's actually happening and sometimes it's just a concern.
1: Yes, there was a company, a crypto company in Kenya many years ago that had huge potential in facilitating crypto-based payments amongst individuals and also businesses that was linking to the investor system and, and they got kicked off because crypto. This was in the early days. Uh, understanding has evolved since then. Um uh, is still running, but in a different way. It has it has pivoted and is a very run by very smart people. It's um Something that we are likely to see take hold, in my opinion, in the coming years, largely because people are demanding it. There is huge growth of crypto adoption in countries like Kenya, countries like Nigeria that has uh, looked at similar projects. I don't know if you remember, Joe, if you saw this, but I think it was last year. I might be getting my dates mixed up where the central bank issued a statement reminding everyone that there was a ban on cryptocurrency transacting through banks and and there were riots in the streets. And I'm perhaps simplifying a bit, but it showed the demand of the younger generations. And let's remember that Africa has the youngest population in the world, just in terms of size and average age the demand from the younger generations that no we need this we need this and eventually the central bank backed down and the government is looking into perhaps redefining the rules around what can be done part of the uh, part of the flip side of the rather i uh, shall say cumbersome regulatory structure in much of the developing world is that it is also fairly easy to develop economies around the regulatory structure and that is what we have seen in many areas, and what will, in my opinion, eventually become part of the mainstream.
0: And it, isn't it funny when when there's any authority figure who says, "Don't do this. You can't see this. There is nothing to see here. You're not allowed to." Uh, it just curiosity spikes, and, and absolutely and the, and the more. The more that these, where is it? More Let me it. Yeah, the more the more they push back, the more they say. Hey, just a reminder, you're not allowed to do this is almost like a, a trumpet call to go and look look into that. Why, why would you not want us to, to, to know about this? Because there's nothing to see here. And it's especially
1: relevant, Joe, given what you talked about in the opening of our conversation, trust in institutions. We talked about the mm-hmm. trust in central banks, but let's step back and trust in institutions more broadly. I don't know if any of if you've ever looked at the Edelman Trust Barometer report that comes out January every year. It's run by the Edelman PR firm, but it's a very comprehensive survey of what demo, different demographics around the world are feeling about their institutions, and it is alarming how trust has been dropping in centralized institutions in business in media in the guider and the gu- the guiding stars of our existence in previous generations and this is especially acute in some of the developing countries, especially in some of the larger economies of sub-Saharan Africa. Nigeria is an interesting example in that they have actually had quite a lot of social unrest recently because of police brutality. This is perhaps a continuation of that. They have very high inflation. This is perhaps a continuation of that, and it is notorious for some regulatory corruption. This is perhaps a continuation of the um, resistance to what has been the previous generation's normal the younger generation are understandably and increasingly angry. And I think I can probably say not just in some of the developing countries, even in many of the developed countries, the younger generations are increasingly angry at the mess that they think the older generations have left them. And crypto is not exclusively, but largely a younger person's response to the centralized control that they no longer trust.
0: Yeah, sometimes I wonder about when it, when it comes to these perceptions as well, that we live in a time where the volume of information and the misinformation obviously is a buzzword that gets thrown around, whether it's true information, half true information, misinformation, doesn't matter. Just the volume of information that we have access to anybody who has, you know, connection to, to the worldwide web, uh, who can read all of this stuff. it it almost seems to me like everything's a a full circle and having no access to information living under like a very authoritarian type government and having just information spouted nonstop at the volume that we have right now. Uh, I don't want to say. Uh, obviously, I would prefer to. I'd prefer the latter, right? Like I want. I, I want the access. I want the choice. I want to be able to do my own research. I'm not advocating for for any uh, restrictions of freedoms, but sometimes I just wonder when we look at these perceptions, even of how, what people have in their institutions, that like if you have this volume of information, whether whether trust really could ever be regained over time anyway uh such an
1: amazing question and so relevant as well because i'm very pro-choice as you know i'm freedom uh, especially freedom in terms of markets freedom in terms of access to information something i care very much about but it is fraught with risk you as you said jones brilliantly put we have access to so much information compare this to our parents generation or grandparents generation where The newspaper, told the one newspaper you got delivered every morning, told you what was going on in the world and you believed it. But now we don't. There is no one trusted source of media. And as a result, media is becoming increasingly partisan. But also as a result, more and more of us are looking for our information elsewhere. But that leads to the risk of echo chambers, and we've all fallen into that trap every now and then. It's just so much nicer to only listen to people who we agree with, right? And that is also part of what's happening in terms of the polarization that we mentioned earlier in not just the developing world, but certainly in the developed world as well. But what's the solution? Less choice or just self-discipline to try and read a wider range? That's easy to say, harder to implement for many people. It's uh, especially relevant in the crypto world. Joe, you've been following this for a while too. You are no doubt aware of the different factions that insist that Ethereum is the only chain that matters. Bitcoin is the only one that can possibly be secure. And uh, they tend to get very adamant about it. You've often heard crypto referred to as a cult, I am sure. This is a pity because it does dissuade many uh, objectively interested people who just want to learn. It, it dissuades many of the intellectuals that just want to you know, bring their grain of sand to the table. But it also shows that people care. I mean, people care, obviously, about freedom. It is something worth getting excited about. People care about privacy. It is something worth fighting for to some extent. But what is exciting to end that whole rather dark uh, side track on a uplifting note is that the freedom of access to information is also an opportunity. It is an opportunity and eventually information does filter through to where it can make a bigger, the biggest impact possible.
0: Well, yeah. speaking of, of the, the echo chambers, two thoughts. One, some of this terminology that, that exists and that gets, thrown around or these phrases. um, I'm not really a fan of. And the way that I've explained it to people is that I think sometimes when you're forming a community early on, there are things that are kind of silly, goofy language, wag me, which means we're all going, we're all (laughs) going to make it and friends, you know, F-R-E-N-S and these sorts of things. Early on, I think it, serves as sort of a glue for a community that otherwise might be pretty fragile and at any point is at risk of getting broken up. And so it serves an important purpose. At a certain point, I think it can start to feel exclusive uh, to new people trying to get in. I think it it certainly seems immature uh, at times. So that's not really as much an echo chamber thought as just a, a culture thought. Uh, in this space. Then on the echo chamber front, uh, I brought this up in previous conversations. So hopefully for listeners, you're not getting bored of me repeating these things. But on, on the echo chamber front, sometimes I wonder whether the crypto community itself challenges uh, our own narratives and assumptions sometimes. And we talk about immutability and censorship resistance and and on and on. And it's very nuanced because when we talk about censorship resistance, for instance, um, centralized applications, we can call them dApps, but they're oftentimes not really decentralized applications. They're just Applications built on top of a decentralized layer aren't censorship resistant. Uh, blockchains aren't really immutable. They're just very resistant to change, which is a little bit different than immutable. And so we, we when people are coming into the space, we we say these things like uh, blockchain is immutable. It can't be changed. Uh, blockchains are censorship resistant. They may be censorship resistant, but if the use cases on top of them aren't, is that disingenuous to put it that way? So Kind of a long thought and not as much a question, but do you have anything? Your, to add? You have a
1: very sharp eye for cultural trends fascinating observations on the former. The language, the the cult like language that you refer to, the signaling it's it's signaling hmm. of how many people do you follow on Twitter have uh, crypto punks as their avatar. It's a type of signaling, but it's not it's not unique to crypto. People have always done this, and this is actually how language evolves. You know, in high school you and your friends had some code words I mean now it would probably be bro that's probably dating he's probably moved on now but there's a, just a code language that makes you part of the in crowd whatever crowd that may happen to be for you at the time professions do the same thing I you know working with traders totally different language working with uh, oil people totally different language it is something that human. It's uh, not unique to crypto. It is definitely part of the crypto scene, though. And moving on to your second observation, you're right to highlight that it can do damage, unlike in other In other, uh, well, I say trading probably also, I'll always wonder why the word options means so many different things for something that's actually quite important to be precise about. Anyways, I'm not getting sidetracked on there. Decentralized is one of those words that, as you correctly highlight, we use it as a sort of broad brush without really meaning the word decentralized. Privacy is another one. What do we mean by these? But going back to what we started with, Joe questioning these definitions is part of the tools to question these definitions I should say is part of the gift that the emergence of crypto into our culture into our into our minds has has given us what is decentralized to you is decentralized a binary or is it a gradient is private a binary or is it a gradient is a free market a binary or is it a gradient and all of these may these questions may sound like semantics but they're not they actually do have regulatory implications
0: Absolutely and and just one one other example and I don't mean this as too forceful of a criticism because I think I think there's so many intelligent people in this space and people are acting in good faith and trying to think about it correctly but Sometimes I just see these things that to me seem like contradictions. And another one of them is with Bitcoin and Ethereum. And the same people sometimes who say that the Bitcoin energy usage narrative is a complete misunderstanding also celebrate Ethereum cutting down its energy usage by 99.9% celebrating Ethereum cutting down its energy usage is implicitly suggesting that there was a problem with the way that that Bitcoin was doing it and Ethereum doing it previously, which was very similar to the way that Bitcoin is doing it. So uh just sometimes on these on these uh on these contradictions, I feel like sometimes it, it gives ammunition to uh to people who don't want the best for <laughs> this space or don't want any of this to go anywhere. but uh, Yeah,
1: that's I'll- a good point. I'll- I mean, one, one comment I'm hearing quite a lot now is that now that we have Ethereum on proof of stake and consuming you know, 99% less energy, what are they going to criticize next kind of thing? But it does highlight the confusion around this, that energy consumption is a problem in the first place. I mean, energy is a sign of energy use is progress and more energy use is more progress. And something like Bitcoin, it's energy agnostic. So assuming that it consumes too much energy, you've heard this, I've heard this. What does too much mean, first of all? Too much compared to what? What is enough energy in the book? But also it assumes that energy is a zero sum game, which we all know it isn't. Not all energy is non-renewable, quite the contrary. One thing we also know because we have seen many successful examples of this is that Bitcoin mining is an economic incentive to the development of renewable sources, unlike any other that we have seen so far, in my opinion, because it is the only large consumer, large industrial consumer that is mobile, relatively mobile. It can go to the sources of the energy uh, generation and it can be switched on and off with relative ease. So all of these are economic incentives to the development of new types of renewable energy, new sources, new generators. On Ethereum, uh, it consuming much less energy, that's fantastic. I, I'm not sure it, it needs to be a contradiction. It, it often is, and the ways you cite it for sure, but it doesn't need to be. I think it's great that Ethereum is using less energy, fantastic. But for me, Ethereum was never about the security. Ethereum's security algorithm now is very different. And we we'll get into the debate as to whether proof of state can ever be a secure proof of work. Let's just acknowledge that there are trade-offs. I think few people will deny that there are some trade-offs. And it's up to every single investor and users of these networks to decide whether these trade-offs are worth it. I, I like Bitcoin and I like Ethereum for different reasons. For me, Bitcoin needs to be proof of work, and it needs to consume a lot of energy because that is what keeps the network secure. This does not have to be contaminating. And Ethereum, fantastic that it consumes less energy, that it's cheaper to use, that it can be more decentralized in terms of its validators, etc., etc. Different type of network entirely.
0: So, Noel, I'm actually going to pivot a little bit here, um, just because I think. Listeners could really benefit from hearing your thoughts on stable coins, if that's something you're comfortable talking about. Um, Would you break down your views on on stable coins? What are they? Why are they important? Are you a big believer in them? Uh, Are some better than worse? Or, or some better than others, I should say. I kind of break it down for people that the algorithmic as we saw are clearly, we yeah. knew, we all knew that the most dangerous. Yes
1: so. to all of the above is basically the answer. Uh, stable coins for the listeners who aren't familiar with the concept is a crypto asset, a blockchain based asset that is linked to the value of another asset. Now, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, Joe that definitions can be problematic and vocabulary can be problematic and I'll Throw stable coins in the problematic hat. Stable compared to what? Exactly. We're going to say a stable coin that is linked to the dollar. Well, the dollar's not exactly been stable recently, has it? Uh, so stable compared to what? However, let's just go with the established term because it's easier. Stable coins are linked to another asset. Most of the ones currently in circulation today are linked to the dollar. There are stable coins linked to many other currencies as well, but they are not as much in demand because the dollar is the world's reserve currency and everybody wants dollars. There are also stable coins linked to gold, linked to some other assets as well, diamonds. But uh dollar is the main one and why I'm a believer in them because just look at the chart of their adoption it's astronomical why is the chart of the adoption astronomical but not surprising because they are an extremely efficient way to transfer funds they were a key ingredient to I'll, I'll use I don't like hyperbole words but I'll see the explosion of the crypto markets because crypto markets are really inefficient they were born inefficient and they have been until very recently very inefficient and in that you we're unable as a large trader or individual or institutional investor to get the best price, the best price, because every single exchange had a different price. For, let's use Bitcoin as an example. Every single exchange trading Bitcoin had different prices. They were trading themselves. There wasn't a consolidated tape like there is with traditional assets. And so you, as a fund manager, you were unable to get the best price for your clients. This is something that fund managers really are not happy with, understandably. And sometimes their mandates prohibit this. So, Uh, You cannot get the best price ever in crypto without stablecoins because you would need to have funded accounts at every single exchange. That's not capital efficient, another thing that many funds are prohibited from doing. So stablecoins enable the rapid transfer across blockchain networks of dollars, effectively. It's really that simple. So rather than have to have accounts at every single exchange, stablecoins, zip it over. It's there in the question of seconds, it's based on Ethereum, and you can execute your transaction. Stablecoins are seeping into traditional finance slowly gradually but it is happening and this is where I get most excited. They are an efficient way to transfer funds. Banks are recognizing this. Some banks are experimenting, have experimented with internal stablecoins that can be used amongst their clients for cross-border payments, very efficient, fast and cheap. This will this is being explored by governments around the world. There are something like 66 central bank digital currency experiments, pilots going on at the moment. Will we see central bank digital currencies in the wild? Yes, I, I'm certain that we will within a few years. The um, stable coin innovation, this is where I also get excited. It allows for programmable money. This is something we haven't really begun to explore yet. Right now, we love the idea of access to dollars without going through banks and being able to zip those dollars around the world in a question of seconds at a very low cost. But what if, for specific applications, those dollars could be programmed to do something additional? This is the double-sided coin, obviously, no pun intended, but there's additional functionality there's also the possibility for additional control and censorship. I'm launching a stable coin, for instance, and I will never allow it to be used for, I don't know, chewing gum or something, that's a crazy example, but it does give a hint the programmable money sounds like a great innovation. I believe it is, but yet again, something to keep an eye on.
0: And even with the, um, you brought up the the price differences, that was excellent, by the way, on stablecoins. coins, thank you. Um, just a thought that that came to mind uh, that listeners may find interesting. Those price differences on exchanges, that's how Sam Bankman Freed of FTX fame, uh, Tom Brady endorsement. Um, so for the, the <laughs> NFL listeners, you've probably seen FTX commercials. That's how he made a lot of his money before launching FTX was just arbitrage trades on, on different exchanges. So if you find a price difference in Bitcoin, uh, you can kind of make up make up that difference and, and make a whole lot of money. Um, on blockchains themselves, something I've not talked to any other guests about, just thought of because when we talk about blockchains, I feel like we're almost always talking about public blockchains. Do you see a future when you brought up maybe that use case with banks that you were talking about? would be an example of a private or permissioned blockchain. Do you see uh, a future for those? Or do you think it's kind of a contradiction in and of itself to have a private blockchain? You're leaving the benefits of the blockchain on the table when it's private?
1: I do see a future for those. And it's an excellent question because curiously, funnily enough, there does seem to be a growing interest in them now with some projects that we're seeing float across Our screens, they were a very big thing, 2016, 2017. uh, Went quiet because of the questions that you have raised. Who on earth wants an internal blockchain? This is a contradiction. You don't need a Database works just fine. Thank you very much. But we're starting to see, uh, even back then, I remember thinking, it's a question of time. Right now, back then, uh, back then being just a couple of years ago, they were not ideal for internal uses because blockchains are expensive. Blockchains are fairly clunky. It's a relatively new technology still. And because it's a new technology, there aren't, that, there aren't enough developers to go around. Blockchain developers are expensive. So, uh, whereas, you know, SQL, it's there. People know how to use it and it serves the function. But, but, it's a very big but, the tides are turning on that. One, blockchains are becoming cheaper, more plug and play, even on the internal varieties. Two, There is growing awareness of the need for data protection. We've all read about the data silo hacks where personal data is suddenly out there in the wild. This is, people don't realize how vulnerable our personal information is and how vulnerable that makes us to all sorts of impersonations and financial fraud. But we do know that blockchains are a technology with a different type of data storage mechanism and this is something that we know many companies are starting to look at they're still a bit clunky still compared to sql but they can be made more secure that is one potential use case we know some companies are exploring another fascinating use case is what we hinted at earlier with the reduction in costs banks looking at DeFi costs cost reduction remove some of the intermediaries cost reduction many of your uh, listeners have probably tried to open a bank account at more than one bank at some stage in their past and they have probably wondered why do i have to fill in the same information why do i have to replicate the paperwork the bank's um, back office uh, are probably wondering the same thing although that is what their job is however we probably don't appreciate enough just how expensive back office work is for banks as well as kyc and other compliance issues now what if there were a database shared by an, a specific group of banks by invitation only where the information gets put in once and it is validated we know this information has not been tampered with we know it has been verified by the verifying parties just imagine the cost savings for banks on having access to an internal network with immutable transparent verifiable data transparent only to network participants as an internal blockchain it's not open to the public but it is going to reduce costs and let's face it we all want our banks to survive and if they can reduce costs hopefully they'll pass some of those savings on to us which particularly in this economic environment would be very welcome so internal blockchains huge potential early yet still clunky still expensive sql cheaper but that is going to change, not just because of the evolution of the technology, but also because of the growing requirements for data, I guess, um, what's the word, data uh, health, data health, as well as privacy protections.
0: That's excellent. Uh, small note for some I think I think most of our listeners are up to speed, but KYC means know your customer. Basically, if you're a financial institution, you Within a regulatory enforcement framework, can't just plead ignorance. Uh, ignorance is is negligence. Uh, so you have to know the customers who you're interacting with. Uh, that's part of your responsibility um, as a as a financial institution under most um, legal frameworks. Speaking of which, Noel, I've seen. Um, I'm not sure if if the kind of regulatory environment is your main focus. But I I know that you do follow that pretty closely. Um, I I saw you wrote something recently about the SEC and it interested me that you are in Madrid. Uh, You mentioned London earlier, that you were in London. You have lived in Sub-Saharan Africa. Is it still the whole world has its eyes on what the SEC does?
1: Unfortunately, yes, because the United States still has the world's largest capital markets and the largest institutional investors are still based in the United States. So, yes, it does still matter very much. It's not the only thing that matters. And the obsession with the SEC is mainly for narrative purposes, but also for capital flows. Were crypto to become an unattractive asset class for the United States-based investors, the market would look very, very different, not just in terms of the Flow of funds, but also in terms of the market infrastructure. We, and I say we, the global crypto audience here, very much care what happens in the U.S. on the regulatory front around crypto because of the legitimacy that the participation of large U.S. institutions gives the whole market, which benefits investors from absolutely everywhere, but also for what we can learn about the evolving nature of regulation. I personally, on the philosophical front, find it fascinating. And obviously, I am not a lawyer. There are many people much smarter than me on these topics. But I'm in Europe, as we mentioned earlier. I'm talking to you from Spain, part of the European Union, which is a collection of fragmented capital markets with a common monetary system. And that in itself is really kind of mind-blowing. And yet, we in Europe have managed to come up with the first I would say large-scale, I wouldn't say global, I'd say large-scale framework for crypto regulation, the world's third-largest economy, it's the European Union, we have come up with a framework for crypto regulation. The United States is very far away from that. The United States is a very different base from which it is starting. It is a collection not of individual countries but of individual states, each of which has its own money transmitting law, um, rules, but uh, has a unique, uh, unified capital markets rules. So it is also navigating some fragmentation. Shall we say Uh, it's fragmentation is of a very different nature to that in Europe, which is what makes this particularly interesting to observe. But um, yes, the sec at the moment is what we are all focusing on because of the limitations it could pose on the flows of funds into crypto worldwide.
0: So I saw a report earlier and um, you, you did this responsibly earlier. So I'm going to add the qualification that I, haven't yet looked into this. I just saw it this morning. Could be true. Could not be. But either way, uh, the question I'm going to ask remains that the EU is looking into a CBDC, which for listeners is a central bank digital currency we talked a little bit about earlier, that perhaps the EU is tapping Amazon as one of one of a few uh, consultants on this. But even beyond whether Amazon's really getting involved, uh, it does seem that a lot of people in crypto world are not big fans of the idea of central bank digital currencies. Um, Maybe there'll be some sort of public-private partnership. Maybe it's just from the central bank, but I think it worries people sometimes. And we should also point out that you don't necessarily need to use a blockchain to have a central bank digital currency. I think China's probably two years into their pilot program with the CBDC and as far as I know they're not using a blockchain at least a public blockchain because why would they um but do you have any views on what we're going to see from CBDCs any predictions will the U.S. issue one will it be a partnership with Circle will it be uh will it be just from the Fed you know how, how will that play out and should we be concerned about CBDCs
1: um again yes to all of the above <laughs> Uh, Going back to the article that you mentioned earlier, I also have to do some digging myself, but from what I gather, Amazon is not necessarily a partner in this. There are other companies involved as well. They are just testing pilot wallets. And this hints at where I think this might end up going. First of all, yes, I believe we will see CBDCs in in most economies. Within a couple of decades, uh, some will be launching sooner than others. China already has theirs. You're correct in identifying that it doesn't need to be run on a blockchain and huge debate over whether China's is actually based on a blockchain. Of course, I personally think you can't call that a blockchain. But um, let's go to I'm a glass half full kind of person. So let's go to how a CBDC could be a good thing for governments uh, and for the citizens. And that is replicating cash on a blockchain, which was the original premise of Bitcoin. Any of your viewers who've read the original Bitcoin paper will know that this is what Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin, was after to begin with replicate the properties of cash online. And that's a slight detour, but then do remind me to come back to the dark side of the CBDCs, but in case I forget. But um, cash is a pretty magical technology itself, Joe. I can hand you, should we be in the same room, a uh, fifty dollar bill makes sense right i could hand you a fifty dollar bill in exchange because you did something for me you i don't know translation or, or something you did something for me so i'd hand you a fifty dollar bill and i don't need to know anything about you i don't need to know your name i don't need to know where you live i don't need to know your nationality i have given you some of my value without knowing anything about you but if we are obviously not in the same room so let's say i had to make this transfer to you online for whatever reason and it would uh I'd have to know your name I'd have to know your bank account I probably need to know what country you're in and I would definitely need to know where you're at your address or your bank would know that information anyways I would need to know a lot of information about you to be able to make that transfer so you're understanding the advantage of cash here cash preserves privacy online transfers don't also in the bank I would need to ask permission of my bank to make that transfer to you And the bank would record that and report it if necessary. So privacy cash, not privacy online, but our world is online. Our world is going digital. So how can we replicate the potential privacy of cash online? Crypto assets are one way. That, that could be done. And the individual choices that the government's exploring CBDCs will make will very much depend on their political philosophies. My hope is that if there is a U.S. CBDC, it will be a privacy-preserving one because that is part of the... American way, that is an opportunity also for the United States to flex its soft power, its influence around the world and say, see, we do care about you, the individual and your privacy. This is the upside, another upside to CBDCs, and then I will go on to perhaps a more realistic take. The other upside to CBDCs is that should they become the norm, we will all have to have wallets in our phones, digital wallets, and just think of all of the services that can be layered on top of that. And that is the interesting part of what the EU EU experiment with Amazon is saying. They're starting to experiment about other services that could become part of this. And cryptocurrencies could well be part of those add-on services as well. If we all have a digital wallet, Why aren't we transacting in Dogecoin or Bored Apes or anything like that? Now, the dark side is privacy, and this is something that I care very much about, obviously, and anything that runs online controlled by a government is obviously going to be subject to some sort of surveillance because this is going to make the government's life so much easier. Why wouldn't they, right? If they can, why wouldn't they? My hope going back to something slightly more optimistic is that governments will implement a a way in which transactions are anonymous, but the aggregate data can be harnessed by governments to improve their services, to have more real-time information about the price of used cars, to to get ahead of inflation curves, to understand some underdeveloped areas that might need help before they become a national issue, etc. So CBDCs are going to happen. They have good side and bad side. I am fearful of the bad side. I am hopeful that we will also see some positive innovation and also clear definition of our basic rights emerge from these discussions.
0: Yeah, wow, What a you kind of covered it all there. Um, a lot of different angles and um, it seems like the inevitable future. We have so many countries looking into CBDCs right now. So, um, but Noel, to wrap up the conversation, um maybe you could leave us with a little bit about what your journey in crypto has been like and uh, outside of our conversation because i'm not afraid to be cliche we know what advice would you maybe give someone who's not in crypto right now who just doesn't know how to get involved really and how to break into this industry do you have any advice
1: Learn about it. That's the number one advice, very simple one, learn about it. And I often get asked, where do I learn about it? There's so much information, as you mentioned earlier, Joe, Coindesk is the leading media resource. Start there, follow the headlines. They have very good explainers. There's plenty of research out there, some very smart people on Twitter worth following if you can withstand the firehose of noise sometimes. Uh, Excellent videos, your podcast, of course. And uh, there are many others as well. It's just so much great information that by diving in, and playing and you know, pulling on some threads, you'll find information format and, and tone that resonates with you. My journey started at the beginning of 2014 on my parents' sofa in London, where I watched that comic. I started researching, researching, researching. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to understand. This just felt Different. It felt exciting. I hadn't been so excited about anything in a very long time, and then I started writing. Writing is how I learned. so I started writing a blog. I started uh, teaching, also some blockchain. Go figure. I barely knew in it myself, but I was asked to teach at one of the business schools here. And then the time came when I decided it was time to get a job. I want to get a job in this. I want a job in crypto, and I. Thought about what's the one company I want to work for. The company I most want to work for was Coindesk because education was then, and I believe still is, the strongest on ramp education. Once you start learning about this, we call it the rabbit hole for a reason. Once you start learning about this, it's really hard to stop when uh, your eyes open to how we have been sleepwalking through so much of our financial education understanding and also how now more than ever, Joe, it really matters. The world is changing fast. And while crypto is not the solution, it is a very new shiny tool in the box and i believe will be part of a solution that might emerge and boy do we sure need one anyways uh i wanted to work for coindesk i wrote to the then managing director explaining why he should hire me even though they didn't have anyone in europe and i explained to him why it was a very good idea to have someone in europe and he did i joined in coindesk 2016 writing newsletters and uh i left there in 20 last year june of last year to join genesis trading because i wanted to learn about markets market infrastructure I, i care about markets your listeners probably gathered uh, that by now, and I have been concerned about the increasing limitations of access to markets. I believe crypto is a tool for that as well. I left uh, Genesis Trading end of August, and I have been on holiday up until today. Today is my first day back at my desk, and I'm getting ready to start writing again, going back to writing and learning about some of the issues. I haven't been able to focus as much as I would have liked to on over the past few a few years I would say and that includes privacy that includes the role of regulation in the on ramps that we are seeing and that certainly includes the role of crypto in some of the emerging economies that we have mentioned
0: well I can relate to what you said about um one of for you one of the best ways to learn is by writing I'm 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 very much in that same camp and um uh the, the, the posts that Noel writes are some of the best out there. So we encourage all of our listeners to follow Noel on LinkedIn at Thank Noel you, Acheson. That's A C H E S O N. And Noel, is there anywhere else that listeners can follow you, or, or would you prefer uh, LinkedIn as your primary? Um, sure. Thank
1: you so much for that plug, Joe. I really appreciate it. Uh, LinkedIn, and I'm going to try and post more often there now that I'm back. And also Twitter, uh, Noel in Madrid, at Noel in Madrid.
0: Awesome. Well, there's been such an excellent conversation, Noel, and I appreciate you joining the Atria podcast.
1: Joe, Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun talking to you. I really love your the the lens through which you are seeing this uh, rapidly evolving industry because you bring in so many different disciplines. <laughs>